source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Today's reading brings us back to Judges chapter 3, um, beginning in verse 12, 12 through 31. Uh, Judges chapter 3, 12 through 31 can be found in the Blue Pew Bible on page 202, beginning in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message for God from you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. And when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay on their floor, on the, on their, there they, there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. 
So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. May God, the Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts, and may his name ever be praised. Amen. You cannot say that the Bible is boring. (laughs) Right after that story. The situation that they faced, and we're going to talk about the salvation that was accomplished. And then we're going to try to gain some insight into our lives in terms of this uh, rich story. The fact that it was Moab that defeated them was a galling thing because when they had passed through the Red Sea in Exodus 15 and were singing that song that some of you kids know, I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Right? Okay. Maybe some of you sang that. I've sung it hundreds of times to kids. And later on in that hymn, it says... Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. Okay? So from a distance, Moab scared to death their leaders. And when, it, when they actually got there after their wilderness wanderings, it says Moab was in great dread of the people. They were overcome with fear because of the mass of people of Israel. God told Israel that she couldn't attack Moab, though she could have easily done so. But that's part of why this is so galling, because those whimpering, scaredy cats that Israel protected are now defeating them. And they're in the city of Palms. You know what that is? That's Jericho. The great symbol, the place that they, where the walls fell down, the great symbol of what's going to happen in all of Israel, the great symbol of their victory. And now it's owned by Moabites. God is just pressing it in their face. You serve idols. You, you give yourself to foreign gods. Everything will fall to pieces. All of your victory will be ruined. It will be turned upside down. The world will no longer look like it did. And the very sign of their enslavement is this uh, tribute that they had to pay, the symbol of their Defeat and subjugation. But they cry out to God, and here it says, He raises up a deliverer, Ehud, the Benjamite, a left handed man. And interesting here that they talk about his being a left handed man. This is kind of the symbolic dark side that is the left handed person. Okay, in terms of the cultures of that day, it, it means the kind of marginal thing, something kind of outside of the ordinary, even unimportant and underhanded side of the body, as opposed to the right side. Okay, so for instance, in uh, in the the sacrifices, when blood was put upon the uh, The priest, it would be put on his right ear and his right thumb and his right toe. Never on the left side, okay? 
And, and when you would offer a thigh, it would be the right thigh. I don't know about you, but I've never eaten a left thigh or a left breast. You know, I, would, I never have, I never will, you know, because it's left, you know. Um, and it's this kind of thing is why we left-handers have to have years of counseling and lots of medicine, you know. <laughs> the way we're treated and just, you know. Just like Ecclesiastes 10.2 says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, a fool's heart to the left. That's my life verse right there. Okay? So it was, it was uh, symbolically appropriate to mention this because the, the judges are kind of marginal people. All right? Jephthah is illegitimate. Deborah is, frankly, a female. Who ever heard of a female winning the battle, right? And Samson is this wild, unsocialized human being. Uh, Somebody's telling this story, you know, and they're saying, yeah, Ehud fit in with all those other misfit judges. Yeah, what was wrong with him? He was left-handed. Ooh. You know, that's the feel of this. Left-handed judge, where is this coming from? Why would he pick somebody like this? And it literally means bound by his right hand. One commentator thinks it may have been crippled, but I don't think that's the case because he had to look normal when he walked in, and they probably searched the left side because that's where you would normally keep a sword to pull out with your right hand and likely didn't check the left side. But they might have if he had been crippled. But uh, the, the thing that I think shows more so that this is probably not the case is later from Benjamin, we have 700 men who were left-handed. It's kind of like in Apollo Creed, you remember, where he, the trainer was concerned because this guy's a lefty. You know, Rocky's a lefty, and I'm concerned about that. And Apollo Creed, you know, no big deal. But if you're defending, you're supposed to be defending of a sword coming this way. But what if it's coming this way? You know, and that's the idea of them. And probably what it means is they bound their right hand to, to form themselves so that they couldn't do anything but work with their left hand. Uh, and so they were that much more uh, effective in battle. And perhaps this is, explains Ehud's uh, uniqueness here. Now, his name, Ehud, means where is the splendor? Where is the majesty? Kind of like later in Samuel, Ichabod, where is the glory? And, of course, the story itself explains where the majesty is and where the glory is, is, as it breaks forth as God's mighty, mighty power. And it's interesting that they pick him to bring the tribute without knowing that he's been picked by God to be the deliverer. He's just picked to, to take tribute. And probably nobody realizes. We're not even sure how much Ehud realizes that he's the deliverer at this point. And it's likely, the way verses 15 and 16 read, that sent tribute by him, that it just hit Ahud. I wonder if I might could pull something off here, you know. And maybe putting two and two together about his left hand, and maybe if I get in, they won't check it. Maybe I could be in the midst of, of this. It, that's the kind of thing that's happening here. It's unfolding. We, we are looking... For, we get God's viewpoint of it. We, the readers see what everybody doesn't see. God selected him. 
He's got a sword on his thigh when he goes in there. Okay, so we're seeing something nobody else sees. Israel doesn't see it. Of course, the guards and and Eglon, they don't see it. But we see that he makes himself this sword that fits right on his thigh. So as you're as you're reading the story there, starting in verse 17, uh, he pr- presents the tribute to Eglon, and and you're kind of waiting for when it's going to happen. You know, he's got this sword. He's got this sword. All right, he presents the tribute to Eglon. Eglon was a very fat man. Uh, what does that mean? Okay, we'll find out later. Uh, as you're hearing the story, you kind of wonder, well, why did they drop that one? You know, okay, he's a fat man. What does that have to do with anything? Of course, we find out later what it has to do. But uh, actually, the mention of this, even Eglon's name, his name means small cow. Okay? It's a diminutive form of cow. Kind of like our diminutive, like... In, in a, an efficiency apartment, you have a kitchenette, not a kitchen. Or most of you'd rather hear a sermonette than a sermon. Um, so this is the same kind of thing, a diminutive form of that word, uh, of, of cow. Um, and it's not necessarily negative because this same word is used in Psalm 73 to describe the rich person that the guy's jealous of and envious of because they're fat and sleek, okay? Or it describes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel as they ate their own vegetables and they became pleasantly plump. You know, they, they look good. They look like oh, you're, your life's treating you well, okay? So it could be this picture. He's fattening himself up. He's doing very well as this king on the backs of Israel that's suffering so terribly that they're crying out to God. But on the other hand, this word is used when they describe a fatted calf, okay? Something that's being prepared for slaughter. So this is kind of double meaning, like on the one hand, he's doing well on the backs of Israel. But on the other hand, what's really happening? God is just preparing him for slaughter. Interesting. Things aren't like you think they are, see? The powerful aren't where you think they are, and their future is not where you think it is. Just like in Psalm 73 about those very fat people or plump people or doing well people, it says that I saw their end. He was, he was envious until he saw their final end and the destruction. As one Baptist minister said concerning that very passage in Psalm 73, kind of with this accent in Alabama, the wicked... They got one foot on in hell and another foot on a banana peel. <laughs> pretty descriptive and pretty accurate. And so you kind of get that picture with, with uh, Eglon. He's got one foot in hell and one foot on a banana peel, but he looks like a small cow. Okay. So Ehud has this message. And, of course, the message... We immediately, we're, we're, the, tense, the tenseness of this situation. Verse 18, after he presented the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. And you're still wondering, well, what about the sword? What are you going to do? And then verse 19 begins a whole little section that ends in verse 26. It begins with these images that he gets to the point of these images, and it doesn't end until he leaves those images. And it's kind of a, one of those in and out pictures in terms of the literature. And it goes all the way into the middle where he sacrifices 
uh, Eglon and assassinates him. And then it comes back out when he leaves the, uh, where he went in at the, t- at the point of the idols. And the idols frame this action in which Eglon is killed. And it's part of the message that idols will do nothing to save you. Idols are fruitless and helpless when God raises up uh, his people and God acts. So now we get into the thick of it because it looks, we're waiting for him to do something. He presents the tribute, then he finished presenting the tribute, he sends away, sends away the people. But then he comes back after turning back at the idols and says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And you're like, oh, good line, really good line. I have a secret, yeah, it's a secret message, all right. And that word message, word, also can double to mean thing, an item, okay? So it kind of carries that double meaning there. But he heard it as a message. And immediately, he probably appeals to his, flat, uh, flatters him, appeals to his sense of self-importance, that he would have a message. Why shouldn't he have a message? And that he would expect it to be some great compliment or some uh, word about the great future he was going to hold. So no doubt he just took this as a a positive thing that was going to be said. And so silence. And, And we're invited into how gullible he is and how foolish this whole scene is. But it's to show that... When God begins to act and God's, God begins to save, everything falls apart ahead of him. And there is no wisdom against him. And this is also a kind of way to mock those who worship idols and belong to idols because they ultimately are given to absolute foolishness. Because what could be more foolish than for the servants to leave him alone with the... Uh, The assassin. What could be more foolish? What could be more foolish of Eglon not to wonder what's going on here? He didn't even notice that he was left-handed probably when he handed in the tribute. You know, that would be dishonoring right there. Wait, he handed that to me in the left hand. You know, in some cultures, if you do something with the wrong hand, you've absolutely uh, dishonored those that you've done it to. So then he, he sends them out. He's sitting alone in the cool roof chamber, which obviously also has a privy attached to it, okay? It's got his private quarters, and it's got uh, where we say the word restroom. That's our, you know, nice way of saying it. But if you're foreign to our culture, you might say, you, you go there to take a rest? You go there to take a nap? What is that? But that's just our way of saying it. And they have the same kind of terms to uh, describe these things. So Ehud, Ehud comes to him. He's alone. I have a message from God to you. And here this man who's been made kind of the fatted calf uh, is prepared for slaughter. And he actually presents himself to his assassin and presents his overwhelming stomach to him as though like that, I love that uh, far side where the, the one deer saying to the other, bummer of a birthmark, you know, it's got a big mark on him where the hunter can shoot him. And it's like, he says, here it is, you know, stab me, uh, kill me. Like he's an animal presented to slaughter. 
And if you hear this story, it's that way for the original reader to say, I can't believe he sent him out. He's got a sword. I can't believe he's just standing in front of him. And then he does it. Apparently the, the, the sword had no hilt, no handle. It goes all the way in. And of course, then there is, as, as one commentator says, the sword was smothered in the fat. And this is like the hinge of the story as everything turns around. The dung comes out and he locks the door, walks past. There's apparently a room and then the guards are in a room outside. He walks past the guards. I say, okay, he's done. So naturally they're coming in to see about the king and attend him. And they smell what's going on. And the worst thing in the world in that culture would be for you to walk in on a king of all people because they don't even want you to think that they do that kind of thing. You know, they're next to God. They're not normal people. They don't pull up their pants like everybody else, right? As we say, he puts his pants on the same way as you do, one foot at a time, you know, of some movie star or political figure or whatever. So the last thing in the world that they're going to do is to walk in and so the humor of the situation is apparent, that they're waiting outside till he finishes. And who gets to escape because of that? Ehud. God using the providence of even the smell <laughs> to have his man go free. I'm, if this offends you, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's the story, and it's intended to hit us this way. Um, so now that the, the, the hinge turns, the deliverer, the point is that the deliverer reverses everything. He turns everything around and makes history go in a different direction. So that later where it says that Israel, were, uh, that Moab struck Israel or smote Israel in the first verses of this section, then it ends up Israel, same word, smites the Moabites. So everything is turned around because of what happens here. And uh, when he gets by the image, uh, this is the other part of the bracket. He, he, he comes back from the image, he does the deed, and he goes back past the image. And he has escaped now. And it frames everything as like this is preliminary to what really is the core of the story. The core of the redemption is his killing uh, Eglon here. And then at that point... As he blows the horn, the trumpet, uh, the people only then realize that he is their deliverer. As he announces that the Lord has given your enemies into uh, Moabite hand. And they seize the fords, the crossing over place in the Jordan. And just like Ehud was, I mean, like Eglon was shut up into his chamber dead. It's as though they are shut up now into the chamber and they're going to be killed as well because there is no escape for them, not one of them. And as it describes them as strong, able-bodied men, that word strong means stout. Now, that could be used if you're describing an NFL linebacker and say, oh, that dude is stout. Or it could be describing a soft, overweight preacher. Yeah, he's kind of stout, you know, <laughs> has two different meanings there. And so it's probably a play on that, that normally these were stout men. Uh, these were not idiots that ruled for 18 years over Israel. 
These were strong people. It's not as though the three stooges had multiplied and gone back in time, you know, because it looks like that in this scene. But the point is, when God raises up his deliverer, strong people fall by the wayside as easy as pie. That's what happens when God raises. These people that had oppressed him for 18 years, they just melted like butter under God's mighty power as... uh, He raised up someone that believed him and trusted him and acted on his behalf. They're no match for a savior raised up by Yahweh. As one has said, he is removed with such ease that it's just laughable. Just laughable. Who were these people that ruled over them? Now they're just gone because God has chosen to act. Well, several things that uh, we should look at in terms of this passage. One is... The dead end of idols that this passage announces. It's especially the way that, uh, as I said, he, he brackets the, the main body of action uh, by the idols. And it's as though they stood there silently. They didn't do anything. They couldn't defend him. They did nothing at all. The, the people who worship these idols are ridiculous. The idols are ridiculous. Idols always let their foolish worshipers down. They never do anything all. And if you worship idols, you're in the same category as Eglon, this fat, stupid, incontinent leader. That's who you are if you go after idols. And so the real conflict here is spiritual. The only reason Moab ruled over Israel is that they had did what was evil in the sight of God because it says God raised up Moab against them because of their evil. And later this would encourage the people in exile to realize we're in exile not because our God is not true. It's because He is true and He promised that when we disobeyed Him, He would bring the enemy against us. And indeed, He did it. But then when God's people trust Him, the enemy evaporates away effortlessly, as Squab says, the commentator. And uh, so this is a message about idolatry. And I recall to you that a great word in Jeremiah, as we've spoken about it several years ago. But in this passage in Jeremiah, uh, he says, Has a nation changed its gods? But my people have changed their glory, that is me, for that which does not profit. This is found in Jeremiah chapter 2. And then he calls on the heavens at this thought that his people have abandoned the glorious God for idols. He tells the heavens to be appalled, to be shocked, to be utterly desolate, for the heavens to have their mouth hanging open just in shock at what's happened. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, this fountain of living waters, and they've gone out into the desert and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves that don't even hold water. Now, to bring that home, if you heard that I left my wife, you would already be thinking, how in the world? Could anybody leave a woman so kind, so much fun, so easy to be around, so creative, such a wonderful human? How could he ever do that? What, what's going on here? That he would leave, let's put it in terms of this one so glorious a woman as she is. How in the world? 
But then you're in 7-Eleven. And somebody points out that the woman at the counter, that's the woman Darwin left her for. And you're like, you don't want to be unkind, but you're kind of like, we know this little redheaded kid back in Columbus, Mississippi, who was at one of those 7-Elevens and he was looking at this lady that was behind the counter and she had been through a lot apparently and didn't look so good. And her mother knew her son was likely to say something and he was trying to get out of there before he said anything. And finally he just looked up to the woman and says, are you a witch? (laughs) What do you say after that? You know, so you're thinking this, this woman looks like a witch. And then you kind of get close to her and you think, she smells. Does she not bathe? And her clothes are mismatched. And she's got a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. And she's screaming at the guy behind the counter for no reason. And she's breaking into fits of coughing that sound like her whole insides are coming out. And you can't help but think, even though you were thunderstruck that he left his wife, you're doubly thunderstruck, aren't you? He left her for this What? That's the feel. That's the feel of Jeremiah 2. You left me for anything, any idol. Name Name your idol. Name your pleasure. Name whatever it is that you abandoned me for. Oh, it's not, it won't even hold a bottle of water. It's not even a teaspoon of water. It's pure dry ground. And you left the fountain of living water. That's some of the message here. That those who serve idols will end in emptiness, indignity, vanity, death, and judgment. God has come to us to give himself to us so that we would no longer worship our idols. But that we would be restored to the true and living God. This is a picture, too, of the kind of judgment that will be brought upon the whole world. The image, interestingly, of a two-edged sword is used in Revelation for Jesus, a sharp sword coming out of his mouth in judgment. And so Eglon is a picture of the final judgment of the nations under the final Savior, Jesus Christ, and all the judgments in uh, whether it's the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, or the judgment of the flood, or the judgment of the Canaanites. These are little pictures of the final judgment. The New Testament treats them that way. And that means, brother and sister, that the death of Eglon has everything to do with you and me because if we do not trust ourselves to this glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, if we reject the very one God has given to us to save, then we end up in judgment just like Eglon. So all of these people have experienced God's judgment ahead of time. The judgment that the whole world still has in store. They're just types and shadows of the final day. And all the more because... Christ's death is like the first stroke of God's judgment. Judgment fell upon Christ. The violence that awaits all people was experienced in advance by Him. The judgment has begun. And now only in Him will we be saved from that judgment. 
But now the world, in a sense, is under judgment because judgment has been begun in Christ Jesus. But you see, this picture of judgment is also a glorious picture for us because it means a judgment of our enemies, particularly the judgment of our enemy Satan himself, which these enemies of the Old Testament uh, prefigure, they, they look to the very enemies that we face, the very spiritual enemies that we face. And so we hear in, in Scripture where it says that uh, the Lord Jesus has judged the God of this world. He's brought judgment of, upon the God of this world who has been removed because of His grace. And the the as you see Mo, as you see Eglon and the destruction of these troops and the way that they're regarded as nothing, as flimsy, as uh, unable to stand under the mighty power of God. This is the picture of Christ bringing about victory for us. You've heard us say it before, but in Colossians 2, when it describes His victory over the spiritual powers, they are pictured in terms of a Roman army bringing its captives naked on their way to slaughter. That's the picture of His defeating the spiritual forces that are against us. And it's in that vein that He can say to us, Stand strong in the Lord because your enemies are not flesh and blood, but they're spiritual forces. And the, the point of, of, of Satan's work is to produce sin in us, to draw us away from God, to draw us into sin. But Paul says in Romans 6.12, in speaking of the deliverance of Jesus, sin will not have dominion over you. I love that statement. You know, you kind of think, wait, wait, what did you say? Sin will not have dominion over you. Really? That, no, no. Sin will not have dominion over you because you've been redeemed through the death of Christ. He has, he has destroyed Eglon. He has destroyed the Moabites. He has destroyed the enemy Satan. Why else can there be words like what James says in, in, a, in a battle uh, terminology, battle metaphor, resist this, the devil and he will flee from you. That means he will run away because he's being routed on the battlefield. What else can it mean that Paul says in Romans 16, 20, he will soon crush Satan under your feet. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, Jesus is waging war against your enemy's sin. The Holy Spirit, the mighty Spirit that renewed the whole earth is the one who is working in your life to enable you to put sin to death. And we wage a kind of left-handed war, you might say now. Um, because 1 Corinthians talks about not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful, not many of you wealthy, so that God would choose what is low and despised in the world. And there's so many left-handed things that happen to us, so many weird tragedies and failures, but He uses them and, and lays hold of them for us. And especially to think of how things are with our Lord Jesus that He came, you would think, to wipe out the Romans, 
to, to, to begin his kingdom. And yet he comes and he submits to the power of the Roman army. And he submits to the persecution. He submits and identifies with those who have perished. He puts himself under the same ban of destruction and receives that destruction upon himself. Isaiah 53 says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. And so we wage a kind of left-handed war. We're not fighting in violent acts, but we are identifying with those who suffer unjustly. Interestingly now, the holy war is is established and carried on by suffering persecution. We wage holy war by suffering persecution. It's done in the terms of the hymn we sang last week, Lead on, O King Eternal, not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. It's great to be a part of left-handed people. who are out of the ordinary, who are weak, who you wouldn't expect would have great victory, who you wouldn't think would do mighty deeds because they're just a bunch of left-handed people that God has gathered up under a left-handed Savior who in his weakness and death becomes the mighty King and mighty Lord. What will he do in your midst as you helplessly give yourself up to him and truly trust, O Lord, you have delivered me, I will move forward in my Christian life. I will be used by you to do great things for Jesus Christ, to live out his love in the midst of where you've put me. God will do it because sin will not have dominion over you. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word to us, the the great salvation that our true deliverer brings to us to set us free from Satan, to set us free from sin so that we no longer are in the domain of darkness but in the domain of light, in the kingdom of of Jesus indwelled by the Spirit, part of the new creation itself which has already broken in upon this world. Oh, Lord, thank you for such a great salvation accomplished at such a great cost of the death of Jesus Christ. Through Him alone, Lord, We have forgiveness of sins. Through Him alone, we are set free. And we thank You that You take the weakest things in this world, that we don't have to bring great gifts, great strength, great anything. We come helplessly. You're the one who forms us. You're the one who equips us. Shamgar takes an ox goad. How in the world could he kill 600 troops with this long stick? But that's what you do. You're the mighty God to do mighty things for weak people. May we trust you and expect you to do great things in our midst. May we throw away our excuses and embrace a hearty and happy expectation at the great power of God to work in us individually and collectively as a body. For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. For listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. 
Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away, won't you chase my fears away?